Well, for a few weeks now, we've been walking through the book of Hosea, and we are right now in the middle of this book at Hosea chapter 3. The picture that we have of God's love in Hosea is a scandalous picture. And today we're going to see a radical picture of God's love in chapters 3, 4, and 5. God's love is so radical that there's no sinner who is beyond the hope of his grace. God's love is so radical that no sinner is beyond hope in Christ. It doesn't matter what burden you bring with us, what real or imagined guilt, you are not beyond the hope of God's grace. If Gomer is not beyond Hosea's love, there's no way we are beyond God's love. So we'll begin reading together in Hosea chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter, which is only five verses, together now. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And the Lord said to me, that is Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. The name Amos Fortune is a name you may not know, but he's actually a relatively well-known slave from colonial days in America. Now, at that time, New England was a slave-holding colony as well, and he lived in New Hampshire. But the reason that Amos Fortune became well-known is because he worked hard enough to buy his own freedom. But he continued working. He made his money as a tanner. And one day he had saved up enough money to purchase his own wife's freedom. And then he continued to pursue his children's freedom. Amos Fortune devoted himself to this for his entire life. Now imagine with me that today we're not sitting here in Charleston, South Carolina in 2020, but it's more like 1820. And imagine you're a man like Amos Fortune and you find yourself right in the heart of downtown Charleston on the peninsula. And that day you stand at the slave market and you're making a bid. It's a difficult moment because you're not a man of great means, but the thing that makes this moment more gripping, more emotional, is the fact that the slave you're bidding on is your own wife. That's the picture we find here this morning. Hosea goes to market to make a purchase, and the purchase is his wife. You see, God gives us just a remarkable picture of his love here in these verses. We arrive at sort of a transition point in this book. So Hosea's chapters 1, 2, and 3 are devoted really to this picture to this picture of God's love, God's grace through Hosea's family. Well, in chapters 4 through 11 are a catalog of Israel's sin. And then to the end, we get to a call in chapters 12, 13, and 14, a call to return to the Lord and a hope of future deliverance. But today we're here at this picture. And chapter 3 is a hinge in the book. It's a transition between the picture we've been considering, Hosea's family, and the nation as a whole. So first we have the family pictured again in, in verses 1, 2, and 3. This story is easy to read quickly, but it's no doubt incredibly painful for Hosea. 
And the way that Jose even tells the story kind of gives us a little understanding of this. You see, in chapter 1, when the Lord speaks to Jose and tells him to go take this adulterous wife, he tells that part in the third person. The Lord said to Hosea, it's like he's speaking about himself, but he's speaking about himself in the third person. Do you ever have this experience where you deal with pain, you deal with grief by kind of keeping it at arm's length? You lose a loved one and, and someone asks you about how you're doing and you know if, if, if you really, in this moment, opened up the inner recesses of your heart, you'd just be a blubbering mess. And so you kind of keep it at arm's length. Or your spouse has walked out the door and it's, it's too painful even to articulate. And so when someone checks in to see how you're doing, you, you cope. And you cope by almost pretending it's more distant than it actually is. Well, it seems that that is what Hosea has done in chapter 1. The Lord said to Hosea, but now in chapter 3, it's like he's opening up a little more of his heart to us. Because in chapter 3, he's speaking from the first person. He says, the Lord said to me. It's like it's all coming home to roost. The pain is coming to bear. I mean, the Lord's command to Hosea in chapter 1 was scandalous. Go take a wife of whoredom. So when we come to chapter 3, and the Lord says in verse 1, go again love a woman who is adulterous, this is completely unreasonable. He's already pursued this woman. She's walked away, and now the Lord says, go do it again. Well, by this time, Gomer is a troubled person. She's gotten herself in such deep trouble that she's either acquired debts that she's unable to pay, or she's associated in such terrible places that now she herself is a slave. So, verse 2, Hosea says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. This is a significant sacrifice for a man of common means. Now, shekels are various values throughout the history of Israel, so it's difficult to know. It's a weight of silver, but I thought it would help us picture we can know the amount of grain that he gives. So imagine that it's after church. I don't know, you're going to grill out for lunch or dinner, and so you're going to go uh, maybe right next door to Harris Heater, and you're going to pick up a two liter of Coke, and you think, how many two liters do I need to make up a Homer? Well, you'd need 110 of these Coke bottles to make up a homer of barley. And you say, well, let's add a lethic to that, and then you add another 58 Coke bottles. Well, by the time you get to these 168 bottles, you've made up a homer and a lethic of barley. It's some 168 bottles, 335 liters. Well, Hosea's family is just a picture, then, of the nation itself. The larger problem, verse 1, the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. So God asks Hosea to commit to this radical love, not because he's cruel or twisted, but because it's a small picture of the extent to which God goes to love his children. But before the full picture comes into full color before us, the Lord is going to prosecute his case against Israel. So now let's read chapter 4 together, this record of God's prosecution. Hosea 4, 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. 
also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse. For with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. For a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. And a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Bethaven, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices." Well, this is no doubt one of the PG or PG-13 sections of God's Word, as God catalogs Israel's sin. Now, imagine with me this morning that you're not sitting in a church building, rather you're sitting in a courtroom. And as you sit here, there are various people represented at the front of this courtroom. You have a judge, maybe a jury, but you have two representatives. You have a prosecuting attorney and you have a defense attorney. Now, the prosecuting attorney is to make, his, his job is to make you sound like the worst person ever born on the face of the earth. The defense attorney, his job is to convince the judge that you're actually a good person and could never have done what you're being accused of doing. Well, imagine this morning that you walk in and the prosecuting attorney is God himself the best attorney that you could ever imagine, and he's prosecuting a case against you. And not only is this the most powerful case that you could imagine, it's also all true. You'd have no hope because God is also judge. Prosecuting attorney and judge. In Hosea 4.1 introduces formally God's accusations. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. And then the Lord outlines three primary offenses. First, he says, there's no faithfulness, no commitment. Then he says, there's no love, no steadfast love. And then thirdly, he says, there's no knowledge of God. Rather, in place of these things, they pursued lying, murder, and adultery. So we've got these three primary offenses. First, no faithfulness. I was blessed to grow up. I was a member of the same church for the first 32 years of my life. 
And for the large part of my growing up years, we had the same pastor. Pastor Yurik was a pastor of our congregation for 39 years before he retired. And I can remember uh, one day, I think I was probably, I don't know, somewhere 18 to 20, 18, 19, 20. I was probably, I don't know, not as smart as I thought I was at that age. But I can remember sitting there in church one day, and a traveling evangelist had come in, and he was speaking. He was a very, very dynamic speaker uh, by comparison to our pastor. Our pastor wasn't a flashy person. He wasn't the most impressive preacher I'd ever heard, but Pastor Yerick faithfully loved and shepherded our congregation. And I can remember that preacher that day saying something along these lines. When he was young, he had valued giftedness. But now that he'd been around for a couple of decades, on that day, he valued faithfulness. And Pastor Yerick was a faithful shepherd. The congregation flourished and grew under his care. He faithfully loved God, God's word, and God's people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 that stewards of gospel ministry must be found faithful. Yet Hosea 4 says there is no faithfulness in the land. Faithfulness represents a firmness of commitment. You're going to pursue what's right no matter what. Isaiah 50 verse 7 describing the future walk of Christ to the cross said that he set his face like a flint. A flint is, is, is a very hard stone used to sharpen metal tools. Christ was so faithful that he was just pursuing, walking to the cross, and nothing was going to turn him to the side. In contrast to this, the Israelites have no faithfulness. They are low-commitment people. But not only this, they're characterized by no love. No love. This brings us to this second accusation. No steadfast love. This love is a loyal love that helps relationships thrive. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, it's one of the most common characteristics used to describe God himself. Sometimes you see it uh, called steadfast love, uh, loving kindness, God's mercy. It's chesed. It's God's faithful, loyal love. It's used some 249 times in our Old Testaments. It's the emotional component of loyal commitment. A few months ago, a woman by the name of Mary Daniel received some terrible news. March 11th, she found out she'd no longer be able to see her husband. You see, at the age of 59, her husband Steve was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And on that day, she promised her husband that no matter what happened, she would never leave his side. And for seven years, as he was in an Alzheimer's care center, she visited him every night. And to whatever degree she could, she'd leave work, she'd go there, and she'd spend the evening with him. They'd have dinner together, and they'd curl up in bed until he fell asleep. And then she'd go home and get in her bed. But on March 11th, that all changed because of the coronavirus. She could no longer see her husband. She tried everything she could to maintain some level of connection. She uh, tried doing video calls, but by this point, Steve's mind was deteriorated to the point where he couldn't truly understand. He was verbal, but he can't be understood, and so they couldn't really have a conversation, and he would just try to kiss the screen of the tablet. Just didn't work. So she thought, well, I'll try window visits. And so she tried two window visits, but after the second on Father's Day, when he just wept uncontrollably the entire time as they talked through a window, she couldn't do it. She said, I know this is not the right thing. 
And so every day for 114 days, she emailed her state governor, as well as wrote, called, whatever she could do to, to her care center, offered to work for them, to do anything that she could to be with her husband. And after 114 days, she found a way in. She took a job as a part-time dishwasher. It was the only way that legally they could allow her in the center. And she was worried that after 114 days, her husband would have forgotten who she was. But he turned around and he saw her and he said, Mary. And she said, I knew I wasn't too late. I had gotten there in time. That, my friends, is a small picture of God's love. That's hesed. That's the emotional component of loyal commitment, committed, loyal love. And it doesn't take a genius to see that this kind of love is the opposite of what we see in Gomer and Israel. Not only are they characterized by no faithfulness, no commitment, no love, they're also characterized by no knowledge of God. And this is the root of all of these accusations. There is no knowledge of God in the land. You see, for us, for any human being, everything flows from our view of God. Why is it that we live in a world where we can all agree that we want to love one another, but we all disagree on the best way to do that? We can be inside the church, outside the church. We can say, hey, love is important, but we don't agree on the best way to love one another. It's because apart from Christ, we all have the same God, ourselves. And so we give ourselves our own marching orders. And you see, a life of walking with the Lord is a life of constantly reorienting our worldview according to what God has said about himself rather than the God of our own minds. It's constantly reorienting our knowledge, knowing and loving God not as we imagine him to be, because certainly he's like us, but rather as he reveals himself to be in his word. So let's review, no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge. Or to put it another way, these people are low commitment kind of people. They're low devotion kind of people. And they're largely ignorant of God's word. Well, you could use those same three characteristics to describe much of the church today. No commitment. In July, Barna Research published a survey They'd done a good bit of study to find out how COVID had affected people's commitment to the church. And so they surveyed professing Christians who self-professed a high degree of commitment to their church and their faith. They found out that 32% of high commitment Christians weren't participating in any way in the life of their church, online or in person. Well, you might say, well, of course, we live in an era where, you know, technology, it's hard to get adjusted, and so many older people aren't able to get connected. But if you drill down into the statistics a little bit deeper, it paints an even darker picture. You see, for the whole of the church, 32%, but those under the age of 40, those 25 to 40, that number jumps to 50%. 50% of professing Christians who claim a high degree of commitment in their faith no longer participate in any way in the life of their church. But we don't even need Barna to tell us this, do we? We can look around and we can see. Many professing Christians are largely low commitment and also indifferent in their love toward God. And the warning side in any relationship, imagine this. 
you're walking through life, you feel yourself begin to grow distant from your spouse. What's the real warning sign? The real warning sign is when you begin to stop caring that you feel indifferent. Indifference toward indifference is the biggest warning sign of all. When people stop caring, it's a death sign for a relationship. No love. And we don't know our Bibles. There's no knowledge of God. I mean, what God is describing here isn't some theoretical problem somewhere in the past. It is the present state of the church today. And how is it that God responds to this kind of relationship? Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The Bible Belt, Charleston, South Carolina, the supposedly holy city, is full of people who profess religion but don't know Christ. Well, where does this kind of ignorance come from? Where does this lack of commitment, lack of love, lack of knowledge, where does this come from? It's ultimately, God says, rooted in a failure of spiritual leadership. There's no leadership. The spiritual leaders abdicated their responsibility, and therefore the nation slid further and further into sin. Verse 4, the Lord says, For with you is my contention, O priest. Verse 5, the prophet also shall stumble with you. Verse 9, it shall be like people like priests. Israel's spiritual decay is rooted in a failure of spiritual leadership. You see, a priest's job is to represent the people to God through sacrifice and intercession. The prophet's job, on the other hand, is to represent God to the people through speaking God's words to God's people. And both prophet and priest had failed in their responsibilities. As verse 6 puts it, the priests have rejected knowledge. The people have no knowledge because the spiritual leaders have rejected knowledge. So let's, let's pause here for just a moment. I mean, on a church level, churches will not pursue Christ if pastors and leaders are not pursuing Christ. It's not enough to be churchy. We're not salesmen. So as a congregation, when we look for spiritual leaders, whether it's pastors, deacons, Sunday school teachers, we can't look for people who meet the lowest possible bar, i.e., are they breathing? We must look for leaders who are characterized by faithful commitment to Christ and his word. I mean, the most basic qualification is that we must know and love God and devote ourselves to knowing and loving God more and more throughout life. But this goes beyond a church level, doesn't it? Now, not every home is blessed with two parents at home. My mom spent many of her child-rearing years as a single parent after my dad passed. But for just a moment, I want to talk to husbands and, and fathers here. The responsibility for shepherding and leading our families rests primarily with us. It can't be mom nagging we should be at church. It shouldn't be mom pushing us out the door. The last thing a father can be for the spiritual health of his family is an anchor weighing her down as she seeks to drag the family toward Christ. Moms shouldn't be making kids be in church every week. We men must be pursuing Christ. 
and leading our families to pursue him too. Now, now this way of putting this, what I'm about to say, isn't original with me. I don't know exactly who came up with it first. But men that lead like Jesus should reject passivity in their spiritual leadership, embrace responsibility, lead courageously, invest eternally. Reject passivity, embrace responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. Men, the stakes are eternal. We must commit ourselves to the faithful shepherding of our families for their sakes, for the sake of their souls, and for the sake of Christ and his name. Well, following prosecution, it's time now to pronounce punishment in chapter 5. God will pronounce punishment. Let's read chapter 5 together, verses 1 through 15. Hosea 5, hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you, for you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me, for now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face, and Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find them. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah and the trumpet at Ramah. Sound the alarm at Bethaven when we follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I'm like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Well, now that it's time to pronounce judgment, the Lord loops in the third leadership office. Israel, you have prophet, priest, king, chapter 5, verse 1, he loops in the house of the king. So by now, all three levels of leadership have failed and are being held accountable by the Lord. Well, as we noted before, uh, God sometimes calls the northern kingdom of Israel Ephraim because it's the most influential tribe. And that's what happens here in chapter 5. Often he uses the name Ephraim. So in verse 1, the Lord calls Israel to account. The judgment, he says, is for you. I will discipline them all. What then is Israel's punishment? The first punishment the Lord pronounces is endless searching. Endless searching. He says, you'll seek me, but not find me. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 31, as the Lord is making a covenant with Israel, he promises unimaginable blessing for them if they keep the covenant. But on the flip side, he pronounces a curse. And among the other things he pronounces in that curse, he says, I will hide my face from you. You will seek me and not find me. And this promise is now being fulfilled. Hosea 5, verse 6, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. Now, we've got to be careful here because this is not a reference to a genuine 
humble seeking of God. God always forgives those who come to him in humble repentance and faith. No exceptions. Hosea 5 verse 15 says this, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. So God's saying, until they repent. So the people are not looking for God. They're looking for a God in their own image, not for the Lord as he's revealed himself to be. And that search for God in our own image is a frustrating search that never ends because we will always disappoint us. Prosperity gospel preacher Todd, now the prosperity gospel is a form of the gospel that promises only blessing and hides the fact that there are certain things in this world that are difficult. Todd White recently uh, repented of preaching what he calls a man-centered gospel. This gospel contains hints of the true gospel, but doesn't declare the whole gospel. And he describes this gospel this way. He says it's a gospel that offers lifestyle improvements, but fails to tell people they need to be saved from judgment. It's a gospel that downplays the holiness of God, a gospel that pretends there's no real hell, a gospel that's afraid to follow Jesus' example and call people sinners. It's a gospel that offers people false promises of lives without suffering. Praise God for his work of repentance in Todd White's heart. But the pseudo-gospel that he proclaimed is similar to much of what we find in evangelical and Southern Baptist churches today. I mean, to seek God without repentance, to seek God in any way other than true repentance, faith, and worship as described in God's word is to seek God, but will not be to find him. To preach a gospel without a clear need for repentance is to hide the reason that we need grace in the first place. They seek without finding. Secondly, that God describes this judgment as a terminal illness. Verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we find the, sto- five, we find the story of Naaman. Naaman is a great Syrian general. Big man on campus, big man on the block. When he walks in, everyone notices. He's won many battles. He's a mighty commander. But unfortunately, Naaman has contracted leprosy. And this leprosy is a curse. It's an incurable disease, and it means he must be ostracized for the rest of his life, lose all the honor that he's worked his whole life to attain. But he hears that there's a powerful prophet in Israel named Elisha. And so he goes to visit Elisha because he hopes that Elisha can heal him. And he visits the prophet, he walks in, and Elisha says, sure, I can heal you. All you need to do is go down, wash in the Jordan River seven times, and you're good to go. Naaman is a proud man. Conquer a city? I'll do that, Elisha. Climb a mountain? I'll do that, Elisha. Go wash in this dirty little river? No thanks. And so Naaman storms off, but as he goes, his servants plead with him, Master, he's a powerful prophet, do what he says. So Naaman goes down and he washes in the Jordan River seven times and his leprosy is miraculously cured. You see, seeking human solutions to God-sized problems always meets with failure. 
Your name can be Naaman or it can be Joshua. Only God can cure what's incurable. And Israel is seeking human answers to God-sized problems. And if we seek human answers to God-sized problems, we'll find ourselves in the same place, an incurable disease, because humanly speaking, our problems are incurable. Because ultimately, the thing that we face is God's wrath against sin. Verse 10, upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Verse 14, I will be like a lion, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. You see, judgment day is coming. And it's not just for Israel. Romans 2 tells us that judgment day is coming again. Do you suppose, Paul says, that you will escape the judgment of God? The threat of God's judgment hangs over Israel and over any sinner like a guillotine waiting to drop. It's like we've got our head stuck in there and it's coming. So where is it that we find hope? In Mark chapter 1, Jesus arrives on the scene. Mark 1, 15 introduces us to Jesus' message. Jesus arrives and he says, repent and believe the gospel. But that's not a new message. It's Hosea's message too. Verse 15, the Lord says, I will return until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 5 has predicted this coming day. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. Hosea puts it this way. Repentance, acknowledge your guilt. And faith, seek God's face. I said Romans 2 tells us this judgment is coming for us too, but it doesn't stop there. Do you not know, Paul goes on to say, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God isn't judging you today so that you might trust Christ. That's why God's not judging you, not because you don't deserve God's judgment. But verse 5 goes on to say, Romans 2 verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. I mean, the picture here is like we're standing on the other side of a gigantic dam. But behind this dam is not water, but God's judgment. And it's storing up, storing up, storing up until one day the dam breaks and crushes us beneath the weight of God's judgment. Imagine with me this morning that you're not a human being, but you're an ant. And you find yourself scrambling around a house and you're looking for something to eat. And you scramble down into this gigantic basin and there are little bits of food in here. It's a sink. Now, next to you, there's something up above in the sky and it's it's just dripping. But there's a pan there and it's it's catching all these drips. It's drip, drip, drip. You're scrambling around eating little bits of Cheerios and mac and cheese. I mean, you're, you're just living it up a little life, a little ant's life down there in the bottom of the sink. But then the big old mean homeowner comes and picks up this pan. It's now full of water. And those little drips whoosh, become a crushing wave. That's the picture that God gives us of God's judgment. Today, friend, is a day of grace and mercy. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. You see, God the creator of all things, made this world good. 
But ever since our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, sinned, we're all born into this world sinners, by birth and by choice, and thus under the judgment of a holy God. And apart from God's intervention on our behalf, we have no hope. That wave is coming, that tidal wave of God's judgment is coming for all of us. But God sent his own son, Jesus, to bear this judgment in our place. And he's like this unbreakable shield between us and the force of God's judgment. And anyone who places their faith in Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection can have life with God. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Before we close, I want to highlight a beautiful picture in the text that we have here. God goes to radical lengths to love his people. But we also said, who's the prosecuting attorney? God. God is prosecuting this case. So what kind of a defense attorney do we need if God is the prosecuting attorney and also the judge? We need the best attorney that money can't buy. God must be our defense attorney. God himself must defend us. And when we read through the record of God's word, we arrive in 1 John 2, verse 1. And there we find that Jesus Christ himself is our defense attorney. John says, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is our defense attorney. When God prosecutes the case, if he himself did not defend the case, we would have no hope. But Jesus stands in that gap before a guilty sinner, and he says, not guilty. Well, how can he say this? Because 1 John 2 verse 1 goes on into chapter 2 verse 2, where we find that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus says, not guilty, because he paid the penalty. Jesus, the defense attorney, stands in front of us and says, innocent, because I paid the price. God prosecutes the case, but God is our defender. He defends us from an indefensible position, and he delivers us from our sin. Jesus stands and defends us because he's paid our fine. He's paid the price for our sin. I mean, brothers and sisters, if if, if we sit here this morning and we know God through faith in Christ, there are still days when the reality of our sin presses in on us. When we feel the condemnation for our sin. But what is it that Romans 8 verse 1 says? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if for one moment you read a record of things like this and think possibly your sin is too great, remember this, that Jesus Christ the fully divine Son of God is your defense attorney. And he is declaring you innocent. He has paid the price for your sin. God's love is so radical that not only does he love people who don't deserve his love, he also pays the penalty for our sins. This is an unreasonable, scandalous, radical love. But it's the way that God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. What? Love. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.